In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. The scepter shall not be taken away from Judah, nor a ruler from his thigh, until he come who is to be sent, and he shall be the expectation of the nations. These words were first uttered by the patriarch Jacob to his son Judah thousands of years ago, and they were precisely fulfilled. The royal line of Judah would flower on the throne of David and continue through wars and persecutions by pagan neighbors until finally a young and vigorous people from the West would come and take away the scepter of Judah forever and Abraham's promised land would become the Roman province of Judea. The Hebrews were not the only people to long for the restoration of a kingdom or to think that restoration would be somehow divine. A generation before the birth of our Savior, the Roman poet Virgil would put into verse the expectation It was in the hearts of so many of his countrymen. The idea that the reign of the cruel gods would somehow come to an end and that a very ancient god, long forgotten, would reign again. Yam reditet virgo rediunt saturnigarenia. Now, he proclaimed, returns the virgin and now returns the reign of Saturn, the harvest lord. In the centuries to come, Christians would always read these words as a prophetic confirmation of the far more ancient words of Isaiah, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. This divine Savior, longed for by the chosen people, was expected in a mysterious way by other nations as well. The inspired prophecy of the Old Testament already indicated that this divine king to come would be nothing like the cruel pagan gods who play endless tricks for the poets to write about. He would be a suffering servant and a prisoner of love. But we would need the fullness of Christian revelation to understand that this savior was to come not one, but three times. He came 2,000 years ago in the stable. He is coming at the end of time on the white throne. But before that, right now, in man's day, as the apostle says today, he is coming to take birth in your heart by grace, if you have the faith to receive him. In these closing days of Advent, we are struck by the haunting words of our Lord, which the church has placed in her morning office. When the Son of Man returns, do you think that he will find faith upon the earth? This time in which we live is referred to, as I said, by the apostle today as man's day. Far be it from me, to be judged, he says, by man's day. 
The phrase ties in with what the Apostle has said one chapter earlier in the Epistle to the Corinthians when he speaks of God's day, the coming judgment. Man's day is another way of speaking of a human tribunal and human ways of judging. Right now we are living in man's day, but God's day is ever close at hand. Who knows, indeed, if this Christmas will be our very last here on earth. There were some who were among us for Christmas last year and will not be this year. For them, man's day is over. All its prideful judgments were worthless in the end. Now there is only God's day, and his judgment is all that matters. Our Lord is coming like a thief in the night. How many of us sit here in the shadow of death, sleepily persuading ourselves that we can persist in our faults until our next confession and the next and the next all the way to next Christmas? Until finally one day on our deathbed a priest will come to receive our imperfect contrition, absolve us, anoint us, and send us on our heavenly way with all the blessings the Church Militant has to offer us. Is it perhaps to us that our Lord speaks in the Gospel? You fool, this very night your life will be required of you. All your careful plans for pleasure shirk in the duties of your state of life because it no longer pleases you, living for the moment because you care nothing for eternity. These things may enjoy high estimation in man's day, but it is the Lord who judges us in the end. What sort of faith does our Lord expect to find upon his return? In modern times, the very idea of faith has been dismissed with something more or less like this definition, that faith is the power to believe what we know to be untrue. It is a reprise of the ancient phrase, credo quia absurdum. I believe because it is absurd, or rather I believe because I don't think. This is a far cry from faith as we understand it as Catholics. Yes, we have our theological definition of this virtue, but we might counter this definition of the moderns by saying, no, it is quite the contrary. Faith is, in fact, the power to continue believing what we know to be true when it becomes painful or costly to do so. Faith does not oppose our reason. Faith defends our reason when it is assailed by the world, the flesh, and the devil. Every year, many of us have to cope with the fact that certain friends and family members will not be joining us at church for Christmas because they have lost their faith. How many of them were honestly talked out of it by reasoned argument? Did they not rather give up their faith when they came face to face with the truth that Christmas has consequences, 
Why did Christ come? To bring us chestnuts and mistletoe. If that is all, we can accept the claims of Christianity on any day. But if, to evoke a less sentimental carol, he came to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray, well, we might have accepted that notion well enough when it was serenely explained to us by parent or priest. But that faith might be shaken by our first vivid experience of living under Satan's power. What good is a savior when you're quite comfortable under the current administration? What good is light when you prefer the darkness? At this point, you might object that some people lose their faith not because they're enticed by their passions, but because they've suffered terrible injustice. I'm certainly willing to discuss this point with you. But I must say that my experience is that people who have suffered in this way and refuse to drown their sufferings in sensual pleasures either become saints or become angry with God and then probably become feisty saints. They don't become atheists. People who suffer have too much stake in reality to let God off the hook by denying his existence. And Christianity is the only religion which doesn't let God off the hook. It puts him on a cross. The day on which we sing to the day star in the O Antiphons during this novena to Christmas, the darkest day of the year, December 21st, is also the feast of St. Thomas, Doubting Thomas. Yes, our Lord has placed this apostle, chosen from all the others, to be in our novena to Christmas, to fall during the days that lead up to the birth of the Savior. Our Lord did not say to Thomas, Blessed are those who are intelligent and yet believe. This is the same Thomas who a short time earlier was ready to lay down his life for Jesus. Now he refused to believe that Jesus had laid down his life for him and risen as he said he would. How could brave Thomas now doubt the divinity of Christ? Was his doubt based on reason? Or was he still sick with guilt for forsaking his Lord and fleeing from the Garden of Olives? Where exactly had he been all the time since Good Friday? Sulking in shame and despair, perhaps, while the world whispered to him as it does to us, this is all there is and all there ever will be. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed are those who have weathered that dark night of faith and found the day star on Christmas morning. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.